Welcome back to the Act 2 podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I am Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. We have a very special guest today. We are a huge fan of his work, even though he doesn't know why, as he said before the podcast. Um, he was a writer and executive producer on Midnight Mass, a supervising producer on The Haunting of Hill House. He co-wrote Gerald's Game, Ouija, Oculus, just to name a few. Jeff Howard, welcome to the Act 2 podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Hi, Josh. Hi, Tasha. Uh, hi. So exciting. Jeff, we like to start everyone off with their origin story, how you got started. Did you go to film school? Did you always know you wanted to write? What's your moving to L.A. story? All the, the good stuff. I found a dying alien who gave me a ring, and I continued to charge it, and eventually ended up in my dreams. Um, no, I, just, I was raised by like a huge movie fan and just grew up loving movies and TV and uh, always thought that it would be the number one thing. And briefly thought I wanted to be an FBI agent, but then I realized it was just because of watching TV and movies and it was really the TV and movies that were interesting. And then Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of sealed the whole deal. Like, Hello, <laughs> speaking our language. Yeah. Everybody I knew wanted to be an archaeologist and I walked out like, I want to do the job of making that. You know, like it, it, it had mm. finally occurred to me watching Raiders that somebody makes them instead of they just show up and they're sort of like, you know, historical records. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so I just grew up loving them, and I never thought, you know, I was from Baltimore. I never thought that there was a chance in the world. And then uh, when I got out of college, I met this guy who was the Maryland Film Commissioner, and he became like a real mentor figure to me. He was like in his mid-40s, and I was 20, and, and he would tell me these things about his failed Hollywood career, and I would be like, you know, he would tell me all this advice, and I'd be like, yeah, you know, in my mind, I would absorb it. But what I'd be thinking is, hey, just because you screwed up your life doesn't mean that's going to happen to me. Like, those things won't happen. And then everything that he ever mentioned came completely true. And I just, if I, I would have saved so much time if I had just listened to him. That's so interesting. I've had a few people like that where I've met as well, where you meet, or you just moved to Los Angeles, and you meet someone, and they, they tell you what's going to happen. And you're like, dude come on, you've been here, this is not going to happen. Then, like, within it's not going to happen to me. No, I'm, I'm different. better, smarter, stronger. No, you're none of those things. <laughs> no, you're <gonna> get <laughs> we're all down. the same. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, Jeff. So yeah, so you, you, you were in uh, Baltimore and then, and then you moved to Los Angeles. Yeah, you know, for me, it was like I, that, that initial meeting of that Maryland film commissioner, he sent me out for like my first five meetings. Like he hooked me up with people. And mm. um, <clears throat> one of those early ones just spawned into something else. And like, Literally the first time that I came to LA, like for real, you know, like really to go into rooms and things were live and everything was I, uh, I wrote a script in, in 1996, I think that um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's agent got a hold of and they just loved it. And they were like, we, you know, we want you to come out. We're going to fly you out. We're going to put you up in this hotel and we want you to go meet Arnold and go talk to him. And my very first time, you know, I walked out and they're like, wait outside this trailer, you know, so like just stand in there <laughs> Whoa. and, uh, you know, just waiting. And um, they're like, you know, go to this place in Santa Monica. You know, it was the Thomas Guide days and I was just completely lost. And it was like, stand here. And I stood there for about 20 minutes and then the door opened and like the Terminator walked out. Like he was completely dressed in the Terminator costume, the whole no, thing. <laughs> and uh, it was so strange. And uh, it, they were shooting. It was they were sh it was a James Cameron's place in Santa Monica, it turned out. And they were shooting 
uh, a Terminator 3D ride in like the, you know, 95 or I don't know, it was way early. They, they were shooting this ride for a couple of days and, and my writing partner at the time and I got to sit and watch for a couple of days like over this thing and like Schwarzenegger walked out and he came down the little steps from his trailer and he goes, ah, the currency guys. And then he left and we never talked to him again. Like that was it. <laughs> that was the entire experience. But we did get this, we watched Cameron work for a few days. And uh, I just remember my most enduring thing of the whole thing was like, A, he had a guy opening and closing a shutter. And every time he would open and close the shutter, he would say, cue effect. And I was like, dude, it's a shutter, like against the green screen. Like, it's so silly. It seemed very silly to me at the time. And then, you know, we would sneak around and we snuck into the back. And when we got in the back, there were just zillions of scale models of the Titanic, you know. And we had just, you know, it was right at the time that you heard he's going to go off and make this movie. Uh, and I just remember I turned to my writing partner at the time and saying, like, uh, who, who's going to watch this? Like, what's the audience for this movie? You know? <laughs> so, like, always in touch Already with Already thinking like a manager there. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> also agent. completely wrong. Like, you know, just <laughs> yeah, like, you exactly. know, no, no connection to the zeitgeist whatsoever. I feel like if, like, that would have happened to me, I'd be like, I'm destined for greatness. This is it. That's a crazy Hollywood story. To, like, that's amazing. <laughs> We, I, we had a lot of opportunities early on, my first writing partner and I, and honestly, we were just huge fans of this band, The Replacements, who just burned every opportunity they ever got and screwed up every aspect of their career. And I think we just emulated them so successfully that, uh, oh. that you know, that, like to our own to our own detriment, we, we took that road a little too long. I mean, let's kind of get into that a little bit, if you don't mind, because I always feel like that's the juicy stuff. For example, your IMDb. It says there's a movie called Permanent Damage listed in 1992 and then suddenly Oculus in 2013. And you also mentioned a writing partner early on before you had even moved to L.A. So can you kind of walk us through the Jeff Howard, the writer, during that, that span of time? Uh, I worked with a guy named Chris Butler, who was like a real, I, I, the only person in my life I've ever thought of as a brother uh, who died about a year and a half ago of ALS, oh. which is just so strange to think every day. <laughs> it's like very strange. Like every day at some point I remember and I'm like, oh man, that's all, you know, that's the worst thing that could have ever happened, um, especially to Butler. And, and mostly just feel for his kids. He's got like two teenagers and everything. But uh, oh. we started together. He was the funniest person I ever knew. We sold three or four things together in the early days. Um, and then he just sort of grew up into a family and a day job and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and, and I migrated to uh, L.A. Um, we stayed in, you know, we sold a couple of things first. Um, the very first thing we ever sold was a script called Strange Love to Neil Moritz. It was another one of those things that was just the stupidest story that you could ever imagine. Like we we had we had a manager by that point, and uh, she sent us out to a bunch of meetings, and one of them was with Neil Moritz and his guy, and we had five ideas on a list on a Friday afternoon, and it was like the last idea, uh, and we had a seven o'clock flight, and they just kept talking and talking, and uh, they were like, "Hey, well, you know, you're from out of town. We really love this idea. Why don't you go home and write an outline?" you know, and and, uh, and and send it in, and we'll talk about it. And we got home, and and we met again on Monday morning. Um, at my dad's little office where we used to work all the time and we got together and we were like we don't know anything about writing an outline or what to possibly do <laughs> in writing an outline so we just started writing the script and uh, we, we started Monday morning and we finished Thursday night because we, wow. we hustled to, fi to meet the FedEx deadline because in those days you didn't send a PDF you know it was like 1998 or something you know you just send a and uh, we, we sent it to our manager and she read like 30 pages she said and then messengered it over to to Maritz and his guy. And on Saturday night, his guy, Brad Love, called me at home like the, the next night. and was like, hey, this is really funny. Like, we're totally going to do this. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, this is, you know. And then um, 
a week later, also on a Saturday night, he called and he was like, Amy Pascal is in, the studio's buying it. Like, we're going to do it. And it was like, oh, wow. it didn't exist three weeks before. And it, it really messed up my head for a long time, making me think like, oh, you meet somebody, you kick around an idea, you write it mm -hmm. real fast and they sell it. You know, it's like, and obviously that was never repeated again. So it's not like, you know. Uh, it, it didn't become the method, <laughs> but mm -hmm. um, but that was the first one in. For some perspective, how long were you sort of doing the slog before you got your manager and she submitted it to Neil Moritz's company? Uh, before we got the, it's like eight or nine years. I mean, it was okay. a really long time. You know, I, I was a, a pastry chef and, um, and, and oh. uh, you know, Butler had a like a day job at uh, Hopkins Hospitals making CCTV entertainment for ill children. Oh, wow. um, yeah, it was really, I mean, that was just the kind of dude he was like, he just, he literally like spent his day job making children with cancer laugh and play game yeah. shows from their rooms <laughs> and stuff. And it's like, you know, I'm a total scumbag and here I am and poor Butler's <laughs> gone. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Oh. Um, <laughs> so anyway, but yeah, just that, just that kind of dude and, and, uh, and really funny. And we wrote just some outrageous comedies together. Um, and that, and that was really the style that we were in. And then a couple of years later, uh, you know, when he sort of bowed out to a day job, um, I hooked up with a, a, a sort of a bigger writer who had the same manager that I did um, just to sort of get to know him. Like she put us together for like a lunch and we hit it off and I pitched him an idea about Stan Lee and uh, he really liked it. And then we went, we ended up going to meet Stan Lee and working with him for a couple of weeks on this thing. And then we pitched it. And like the second place that we were, it, it was a story about like 17 year old Stan Lee. And like when we, the second studio that we left, we got this call from our manager and she was like, you know, there's millions of lawsuits. They're embroiled in lawsuits. It was it was back in the day when everything was going wrong and his relationship with that company that he works with was, you know, contentious. And she's like, there's millions of lawsuits. Nobody even knows if he owns his own name. Just get in your car and go. And I was like, and that was the end of that. Um, and then, uh, and then we, but so in the immediate wake of that kind of sparking together, we, um, I had a book that I really liked and there was one little chapter in it that I thought was a good idea. And we ended up pitching it around town and, um, we had offers from like working title with the Coen brothers and we had imagine with Ron Howard and we had Ridley Scott who ultimately called us in and like sat us down and told us that he just, he couldn't commit to making a movie in, in locations like our movie was set at the time, just because his daughter was ill and he really wanted to spend time with her. And it was like, wow, what a weird personal conversation to call you in to have, but it felt like he liked yeah. it. Then it was like, well, we, we worship the Cohen brothers, but it was like, well, if we go with them, we'll immediately be fired and they'll rewrite it and it'll be great. But like, it won't be anything to do with us. So we went with Ron Howard largely because we were like, well, we won't get fired. You know, like we'll be the writers. Yeah. So anyway, that was the first big one. That still might be the most amount of money I ever got for a script. Which one was that? Uh, it's called... Um, God, it had a bunch of, it was called Severide, which was the name of the guy that it was about. Uh, it was a really good story. It was like a nerdy World War II radio journalist. Uh, it crashes on a plane. It was a true story, like crashes on a plane with a bunch of, you know, action heroes. Uh, and everybody else gets hurt except Severide, the nerd, the Frasier. And uh, they landed in between headhunters and a Japanese base in the Himalayas. And he sort of Whoa. guided them out through 17 days through the, the dual dangers. Um, as the only healthy person. So uh, anyway, it was fun. Holy cow. Can I just ask you real quickly, because we've talked a lot about uh, having writers having imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And at that time in your career, which sounds insane, like this is awesome. You're sitting down with Ridley Scott and you're, you're meeting everybody, you're meeting Ron Howard. Were you thinking, yeah, this is normal? Or were you just kind of like, what am, what's happening right now? I, I had fantasized a trajectory for a really long time, <laughs> like in that studio system, and then mm -hmm. and got in there, 
and sold a bunch of stuff within that studio system, but found it unsatisfying because ultimately everything would die in the system. And you'd make a living, but you'd go home at every holiday season and talk to people and they'd be like, so what are you really doing? You know? Um, and, and so it just got frustrating. And that's when, uh, you know, like a mutual friend introduced me to Mike Flanagan. And I saw these early things that he did when he was like, nine, you know, when I sold my very first script, I met him right around the same time. And I, he was making these, these shorts uh, on, um, on video, like literally on VHS. And they were just very, it was like, they were like the least produced episodes of Dawson's Creek ever made, but you could see the spark of genius in how they were executed. Uh, and I just told him right away when I met him, I was like, look, if you want to, uh, you know, like if you ever want to talk around some stuff and everything, like I just sold my first script into the real system. Like, you know, I'd love to talk some stuff out with you. And he was like, I'll never enter the system. I'm going to do my own thing and make <laughs> stuff on video. I'm a, I'm a guerrilla filmmaker. And, you know, and like mm. we, we kept in touch. And like four years later, uh, he called and he was like, about that studio system stuff. Like, uh, and, uh, you know, we just started talking. And when we started talking about things, I felt more happy with the material than I had in any of the stuff I was doing alone before. Like I felt like, wow, like I, I felt a real immediacy to it. And I thought that his being such a good director added a lot to that. And so I stopped doing my own thing and we threw in together and had complete corporate studio indifference for four years during which time I had to go back to being a pastry chef. Meaning like you you tried to pitch with Mike different things and none of them landed. Or yeah, sold. if you ever want to know, um, fresh writers, how silly the system is. When I started going to my manager and agent, and when I started showing up in meetings and bringing this kid, Mike, they would be like, why are you bringing this person? Like, what are you doing? They're like self-destructing to like take this person around. And I was like, you don't understand. This person's more talented than anybody walking around the entire studio. Like you got it like, you know, and then, but even, you know, he had to demonstrate it by making that Oculus short and making abstention and stuff. And then once people saw that, they were like, oh yeah, he's, you know, he's the real deal. But it, it wasn't yeah. until they saw it that anybody else could kind of see it. That's interesting. That was definitely going to be one of our questions is you've, you've collaborated with, with Mike Flanagan on numerous things, it sounds like, but you know, most notably Haunting of Hill House on uh, Midnight, Midnight Mass, right? Oculus, Ouija, Gerald's Game. You, you talked about how that working relationship started, but you mentioned that once you started working with him, sort of the, I guess the level of writing became different or you started thinking differently about writing and started kind of abandoning what you were what you were doing previously alone. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, before it was big studio system stuff. You know, gotcha. the, 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 those big ideas that had sold as giant specs when I was in college and, and, and after and pursuing and everything. Um, and that whole world. And I really liked it. And I still love that kind of material. But it, it occurred to me that, uh, you know, when we talked about what we were going to do together, the first thing that we worked on wasn't a horror thing at all. It was a really heartfelt thing that we ended up like placing with a really well-known director who was going through some stuff at the time and it really became a weird situation. But uh, th then when it became the horror stuff, it became very real because that was entering an arena where you could make something, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. where it could go from being a development thing and like a good lifestyle to uh, an actual thing that would come out in theaters that, that we would make. And that was exciting. So um, it was really his talent as a director that first made me feel like, okay, You've been on a route for 10 years. You've been following a path. Abandon it and go down, and go down this path because this is the path towards getting stuff made that you can be really proud of. Um, you know, so that's that's what I did. It's a it's a path to getting stuff made, A, because he was so talented, but at the time people didn't quite believe in him yet. So like, what were you seeing about him as a director or as a collaborator with your writing that like made you feel like, oh, this is this is finally it. This is the thing that I need to be making. 
you you could just see him, but really it was the whole. You could just see the stuff that we were doing. Like it just it, it it started appearing on the page, and then you could see it translating as a movie, and you could see how you'd market it, and you could see who you'd cast in it, and all that stuff. And uh, we went through a phase. We wrote four of the best scripts that we've ever written together. Three of the best scripts we've ever written together over a four month period in uh, like late two thousand twelve or something. Like we uh, we wrote Oculus. The movie that became Before I Wake, which we called Somnia, and another script that got bought by a production company that just sort of, I think, disappeared ultimately. But uh, yeah, we did all three of those in like a four month burst. And it was just like a really concentrated effort that was completely designed to like place us within the industry and let us get a really good grip, you know, grip hold on everything. Um, what we did was Flanagan was a talented director. Together, we were a really good combination of writers. And we approached it from a place of we're going to do stories we're interested in, but we're not going to take our eye off the marketing ball and the ability to sell these things, too. So yeah. that's, you know, we stayed focused on that. And then the first thing that came out, Oculus, was like the the absolute opposite of that. Everywhere we went, people were just like, you know, we don't want an anthology movie. We don't want an anthology movie. And then one day uh, just sort of cracked how to make it not an anthology movie because it was a short first. And then, one, you know, once it was cracked about how to make it not an anthology movie, like it just really flowed easily from there. Just, just to just to confirm, you said you wrote three scripts in a four month period? Yeah, I'll tell you something. Uh, okay, this is- Damn, Jeff. Well, all right. So Flanagan and I, in the early days, what we would do is he, he was working as a, I was working as a pastry chef and he was working as a, uh, like an editor of reality TV. Um, mm -hmm. He was doing that show, uh, the drug show, Intervention, maybe, or something oh, like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so we'd be on the phone, Natasha. and like he'd hear me. I'm, I like that show. <laughs> it's funny, but now you know it. why. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> like, wait, there's something about this, the crafting of the yeah. show. Like, it's beautifully shot. Um, yeah, but like I'd be, you know, I'd be like, you know, oh, hey, oh, my scones, I burned my scones. And, and he'd be on the other end and you'd hear like, and then, you know, the nine months of the darkest period of my life, the nine months of the darkest, nine months of the darkest. <laughs> yeah. It's like, but we, we would just talk, like, just both had the ability to talk story over that stuff. So we'd talk story endlessly. But then when it came time to write the script, we, we would have worked it all out ahead of time and put it on paper. And then we'd mm. lock into a place and, and just like sort of that strange love thing I told you before, there was a specific place for each one of those scripts in Studio City that we went to to rent. And we went in on a Monday and we left on Thursday, um, like just every time with the draft. And uh, mm. with, with Oculus, it was almost like those first two movies and the, and the first like four or five scripts that came out of that batch all never really changed, you know, like it was a really weird thing. They just sort of they, they fell out of one really interesting period of creativity that uh, just made these little diamonds that didn't need to be messed with as they worked their way through the system. You know, right. they really landed the only time before I wake had some budgetary stuff that screwed it up. But uh, other than that, they sort of existed as, as they were conceived. Um, which was like a rare treat after so long, so much time of working and, and so much uh, seeing things die in the system. All of a sudden things were coming out sort of exactly as they were planned. So with features, do you outline? It doesn't sound like you or maybe it is. Maybe it's living all in your head and then you're like, I have to get this out. Um, but do you guys do you or do you both have an extensive outlining process? It's evolved. Uh, like you okay. never start, you never end up, it's been 25 years now, you know what I mean? Which is weird, yeah. but it's like, it's weird to say, but uh, it's weirder to live. But um, <laughs> like it, the systems have evolved. And when, when I first started, I didn't outline. And I just, I attribute a lot of that to selling stuff that didn't get made because it was messy. It was good, but it was messy. Uh, mm. Now, um, now I do like a three-step outline process. I do one step that's just beats, you know, just 
Indiana Jones steals an idol from the cave and Belloc takes it. Indiana Jones is a nerdy professor that, and he teaches the FBI about the Ark. Like just boom, 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 boom. Uh, which is like the first 20 minutes of Raiders, <laughs> you know, like in just three beats. Uh, I do that like just to, all the way through to make sure I got a proof of concept that I, that I can kick the tires of it and make sure I got a story. Then I'll go back and do a second outline where I lay the character right on all those beats, like so that they're just sort of intrinsically tied from the very beginning. Um, so the whole character journey and the story through the character's eyes will go on top of those basic beats. And then I'll go back a third time, most of the time, and like strip in all the details, this scene, that research, you know, this stuff. Uh, so that you have like a smart friend sitting there with you when you're working on your draft, you know, uh, like a reasoned friend who's thought it out. What I what I really don't like is to sit there in final draft and go, uh, what's next? You know, like that. that that's right, really right, hard. right. So when you say you layer the character stuff over the like plot beats, can you talk about like literally talk about what that looks like? Is it just here's a beat that's my character uh, feels sad. And then the next one, they feel happy now because of X. <laughs> well, it's more like the journey through their eyes. It's like, okay, if the first beat is about, uh, you know, a man in the jungle with a couple of people breaking into a cave to steal an idol, but you look at it through the thing, what do you learn? Well, you learn that he's trusting. You learn he's really good at his job. You learn he thinks twice and cuts once, you know, you know measures twice and cuts once. Uh, but then you also learn when the adrenaline kicks in, just gives, just goes for it every single time. Uh, you learn that he's a little too trusting when it comes to dealing with his people uh, and maybe a little naive about uh, how people really are and their duplicity. And you also learn that he's intrepid, given the chance at any sort of a uh, hint at getting away or, or getting what he wants. He'll take it no matter what the danger. Um, mm. So it's like that's it to me. It's like, look at the story through their eyes. What do we learn about the character in each step of this thing? Uh, and how does it get us to where we want to have them at the end? You know? Yeah, and, and actually what's like really interesting about what you said too is, is it's it's from like the audience's point of view, right? It's it's yes, it's what are they feeling, but sometimes you can get bogged down by what the character is feeling and not kind of project it the proper way of what the audience experiences. So that's a really interesting step. A screenwriter is a cult leader. Everybody in your cult is the people who watch the movie or the TV show. All you're doing is programming them how to think. It's like, you know, it's not it's not a hugely different job. But th really the great thing about like when you write something like that is they watch it and everybody thinks they're the one who figured it out or they're the one who understood this thing. And they're the only, you know what I mean? And they're the only one. And it's like, no, there were breadcrumbs laid all along the way that you followed to come to the conclusion that you were the only one who could figure it all out. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's <laughs> fun and the fun of being a writer is tricking them in a way. So then when you do that third that third layer of sort of the more details and when you have that sort of 50,000 foot view of your character is part of those detailed breadcrumbs um, like do you get do you get in there with I'm going to find you're going to know he's intrepid because of this thing that he does. Do you get as specific at that stage? Yeah, exactly. It's only later that I worry about scenes because the problem is if you commit too early to breaking things into scenes as writers who partially think we're God and partially hate ourselves, we fall in love with the stuff that we do. You know what I mean? And it's like, once you create a scene, you are loath to get rid of it or cut it or alter what it means or chop it into you know a third of what it was. So I try to wait until the last minute to get into being committed to scenes uh, because I just, that's very 70s, the most 70s sentence I've ever seen. Uh, but um, I try to wait very late to commit to what the scenes are going to be because I don't want to fall in love with anything that turns out to be unnecessary. Yeah, so. I feel the same way. I was just having this conversation yesterday with a writer. He's like, just write your spec. I'm like, but I feel like if I do right now, I'm just going to, I'm going to, now that first draft is the draft and I don't think it's there yet. There, yeah, there's, there's a magic that happens when you type fade out 
where this thing is released into your brain that tells you that you've just created the best thing that was ever made and like you should yeah. send it to 27 people and like <laughs> it's you've revolutionized the, the, the way that we feel about movies you know what I mean and it's like but an simultaneously hour it's the worst thing you've ever written in your entire life uh, yeah or like two hours later you flip through and you take like those lucky flips through and you're like oh, <laughs> like, oh, no, oh no. or you know the best thing is a month later when you realize like every missed connection and every piece that you didn't quite get God. in there and it's like anyway that, that that's yep. why writers send emails with headings like, if you haven't opened that draft, <laughs> you know. So. Read this one. Yes. Oh, God. You, you kind of were just talking about your characters, and you you write such complex characters in the best possible way, right? There's, there's a lot of depth to your characters. Do you spend a lot of time thinking about character, character, character when you're when you're going into writing or like, is this a natural thing? To say it's a natural thing makes you sound like a real jerk. You know what I mean? But I can, I will say I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, I, I do like to walk through the whole thing in the eyes of a particular character and then walk through it in the eyes of another one and another one until I feel like I know the whole thing um, from those different points of view. I always try to go through and whatever the ostensible villain is, if it's a mirror or it's a house or it's a whatever, just try to walk through and look at it from that point of view. You know, what what's it really doing? Like, what's it up to? Because so many times you just sort of leave your bad thing or your problem to just suit the story that you're telling forward of your character. And it's like, ah, they got mm. their own agenda. They don't know they're they don't know they're trapped in some structure where they're following the lead of a person who's trying to defeat them. You know what I mean? They're just going about their business. Yeah, yeah I just try to always approach it that way where it's like these people, these characters don't know they're locked into a three act structure. They don't know that like, or a five act structure. They don't know that like, where they're treading water in the middle to get through to things at the end. So that when it'll finally all happen in the end, they think they could win at any given time throughout this whole thing, you know, or they think it's almost over. So it's like, I think a lot of times, especially lately in reading scripts, it's like, there's a lot of saggy middles that mostly come from the idea that they've lost track of their character doing anything because they're just literally sitting around waiting for the end, you know, like waiting for the big moment yeah. where they could strike. So it's like, no, they, they always think they are. They're always in the struggle. Let them be as deeply into it all the time as they can be. And then the other thing is just, again, if, like if you want to sound pretentious, I watch a lot of Frasier. So it's like this, it's hard for me not to sound pretentious sometimes, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's like, like I, I think that the trick is people say, write what you know. But it's not right what you know, like, okay, I know how to make brake pads in a f factory in Sandusky, Ohio, you know what I mean? So like, that's what everything I'm gonna do is be about. I think it's your emotional truth and the things that you felt and lived through in your life. And you transpose those very real emotions over to your scenes that are in a heightened world that's much different and bigger where ghosts exist or, or, or Godzilla exists or, you know, whatever, or, you know, um, there's a nuclear bomb waiting to go off and explode the world's oil reserves. It's like, you know, you, but you take your real emotions and transpose them into this greater world. And then it just always sort of rings true. And I always think back to movies like Midnight Run that like affected me so much as a kid because it's like it was just so real and so genuine while also being so entertaining. So uh, just try to maintain that. Like John, you know, like if you think the Flanagan stuff's impressive, wait do we talk about Alex Aja or John Carpenter? Yeah, it's like to me, it's a very Carpenter type thing, you know, with those characters. It's like there's a anyway, there's a thing that they go through and they come out the other side, like reinforced in their own beliefs, but still different. So. Yeah. And you mentioned the, the second act sag, which is definitely a problem for so many things that, that make it to production and make it to our TVs and theaters, but as well as on the page. Can you talk a little bit about how you sort of avoid the, the second act sag? 
Have I? Has anyone? <laughs> you have. You <laughs> I mean, have. I okay. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I, look, early on when Flanagan and I started working together, we did talk about structure and we talked about like piecing things together. And we went through a, a lot of movies and broke structures and talked about them and compared them. Um, yeah. It, it, I mean, it just occurred to me that act twos are like two separate pieces. Yeah, and this is just for features, but it kind of applies to TV in its own way too, for middles. It's like what's really going on in the middle is you got a character with a personal problem and you get, and they've also got a bigger problem. You know, I always say global and then people are like, not everything has a global problem. It's not all Independence Day. I just mean the big one. It's just, I just, I just mean the big one. You know, so it's like there's, there's a personal problem and a bigger problem, let's say, a global problem. And uh, <laughs> that global problem, like in the first half of the second act, is running rampant and it's just, it's winning. And they, the, your character is too lost in their own personal problem to effectively fight it, you know? character characters whatever it turns out to be and then at midpoint it's like they they really get crushed and out of that being crushed comes a moment where they realize like okay well if i can change this thing i can re i can attack this thing and do better and then it's like in the second half of that bit which is shorter than the like the first the first half of a second act is a little longer than the second half of the second act because you want to go faster and you want to ramp downward as you're going in that second half of the second act you got the character puts aside their personal problem for a while to focus on this thing and they get close and closer and closer to defeating it until there's like, you know, they finally realize like there's a giant rug pull at the end of it where they start back at zero, essentially, for the for the finale. But in that time, by putting aside their personal problem, they've kind of fixed it. So now they reattack this global problem like one big time and go after it and win. And it's like once I realized that like 99 percent of feature films operated that way it became a lot easier and then the trick becomes like billy wilder said like hide the medicine like the trick becomes do stuff like that but don't let them see that scaffolding kick it all away later mm -hmm. and how do you do that see characters and scenes that make you not realize it that it's passing by and never having somebody say gee i think we ought to put together a guerrilla army and go attack this uh, fascist militaristic base that's taken over the city you know what i mean it's like you just yeah. you know, like if you ever need to say that you got to go back and make sure you don't need to by that time you know what i mean like you got to go back and make sure that the audience is like this dude's got to put together a guerrilla army and go fight the crypto fascist army that's at the center of the bubble you know what i mean it's like <laughs> they, they got to be with you ahead of you like right in that moment deciding that with you, you can't uh you can't just tell them and if you just tell them that's where the sag comes because they're just like all right i'm just i'm just going through the motions of being told this mm -hmm. and then that and then this and then passive. there'll be a big ending yeah so yeah, partic yeah participate yeah. um exactly what my teachers used to tell me in third grade participate and I'd be like there's no chance that's ever gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> so. i mean i think that's that's such a, a hallmark of of your work um, the the twists and the big hooks that just come out of nowhere and surprise you but feel like they're absolutely inherent to the experience because often you'll see a show that just has a crazy hook at the end just because they want a crazy hook to bring you to the next episode but that never feels like that's what's happening in your show can you talk about how you create these twists and hooks for TV are they very conscious things that you do in the writer's room because I often find myself will break it will break an episode and be like well that last scene isn't really hitting you in the face enough that's not going to bring you with excitement into the next episode let's rethink that so how do you kind of talk about twists and hooks for in your writer's rooms I, with Hill House there was this great thing where there were these little round magnets that we had uh, and just drew different levels of scared faces on them it was like 
you know, like bigger, like bigger and bigger scare faces on the little magnets and would literally just place the magnets on the episode as it was broken out on the board and look like, okay, like, all right, we got a big one and a little thing and a creeper and a thing mm-hmm. and a big one and a big one. And we just charted the progress of this stuff, like to make sure that there was enough in there to always be hitting you and uh, always be making, it was like, and, and formulaically, it's just like everything had to be preceded by feels, you know? Um, it was like, how do you feel about something? Boom, the worst thing happens. How do you feel about something? The worst thing happens over and over. Um, and, and, you know, you just go, you, when the performers are that good and the stuff comes together that well and it's directed that well, you kind of go along with it. But yeah, you plan all that stuff out. Um, even as early as Oculus, like all those cuts uh, that occur in the movie, the back and forth in time, they're all there. You know what I mean? It was all like worked out like to, to the moment of what it was going to be, which is another benefit of writing with directors. Um, is that, you know, you know, like you're right with the director and you really get that, like, uh, that final thing. But another thing that we did in Hill House that I've never seen done since and I wish would continue is like, when we were done with an episode, we would then sit there and spend a couple hours going, okay, what's every transition between scenes? Like, how do we get emotionally from one scene to the next and make sure that mm-hmm. we're always like bridging each thing together? And that never really happened again. And I was kind of bummed out because I really love that system. Um, so, uh, trying, trying to, uh, I mean, it will be happening. The the room I was in that got interrupted by the by the strike. When we go back, that one will be. Uh, we're we're doing that same kind of thing there, so it makes me feel happy. I love that. I'm gonna start adding that to my rooms as well. <laughs> There's just some stuff that works. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, and I think everybody has their own experience. And the trick about all this stuff is never just absorb somebody's whole system. Take the bits that work for you. You know, like build them into your own. Never just try to co-opt some entire thing, but pick up little pieces here and there. Um, for all the technique that we do, I, all these people who come to the Zooms or I say it in the YouTube videos, it's like you're never going to find a guru path. Everybody has a different way in. Everybody has a different way of doing their career. Everybody has a different way of writing. What you are going to find is like a bunch of tips that you can uh, fold into what you do. But if you fold in any tip or trick or technique that doesn't resonate with you, you're really holding yourself back. So it's like, if yeah. it, you know, don't take some guru's advice ever. Uh, listen to what they have to say and adapt it into your own system. Yeah. I think that's really great advice and i think it's a perfect transition to uh, another question about writers rooms in general it's um it for me it's an endless source of curiosity how other rooms are run just how those showrunners decide to do things or the, what the experience of other writers has been um and every room is incredibly different you could just have all the same writers you introduce one new personality and suddenly it's a totally different room or you have different constraints from from the studio so for writers who maybe have never been staffed before or who are new to staffing, can you just kind of talk about what your writer's room experiences have been like? And then sort of uh, like similar to that story, like what you feel like really does work in these rooms? I, I think the number one thing that works for a room is that nobody knows what anybody else's title is and you never care. And you just sit there and exchange ideas as a bunch of equals having fun kicking through something. And the idea that there could be any kind of hierarchy or anything in there is just antithetical to the entire idea of having a room. And I've seen some writers come in who are afraid to get started and, and, and afraid to dive in and stuff. And I just always feel like, I, and I, I, it's not just me, I've seen other people do it too, but they always get encouraged, like, don't worry, like sit, you know. And so I think that yeah. the, the number one thing the showrunner has to do is create a safe environment uh, where you can throw things out without worry, because it's only the fear of being, you know, mocked horribly for something that keeps you from ever doing something. And you always end up with like a certain level of like confident contingent in a room that talk 80 percent of the time and a less confident contingent that contribute from time to time, but usually say amazing things. The, the best part of Hill House came out of the lowest ranked, technically, you know, lowest position writer in the room. 
uh, Becca Klingel one day was just like, what if all the cranes had already been in the red room and each had a different experience with it and it was a different room to all of them? And it was like, well, that's the show. Oh, wow. You know yeah. what I mean? It was like, yeah. there's the, there's your season. Um, so yeah, you know, so it's like, don't, you know, and writer's room assistants and all those people, it's like a good idea is a good idea. It doesn't know where it came from. It just fits in. It works. It's like, it shouldn't matter. So I think you got to check your ego at the door. And I think you got to allow yourself to be impressed and be a fan of other people's work as they're running on one of their little runs. I think uh, letting somebody finish a thought and really work something out and see the beauty of it, even if it runs you a little astray, is always worth it because there's there's a reason they went there and there's something there. Um, but I also just have one caution too, which is I, I talk to a lot of young writers uh, or a lot of you know new writers, people breaking in. The ones who are in their 40s really resent being called young writers. It's like, <laughs> but it's like, you know, the, in the still breaking in stage. And uh, I, I just, sometimes there's a misconception about that job of being in a room. And it's like, what's the room really about? Well, while you're breaking episodes or the season, it's the time to be as creative and innovative and interesting and throw things out as you possibly can. And it's like, that's what you're, that's your time to shine and do all your stuff and express yourself entirely. Then it comes time to write these scripts and then you've got to write them in the voice of the showrunner. <laughs> you know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's like, so it's two completely different skills. And sometimes newer people have trouble adjusting to part two where it's like, okay, well now I got to go into this voice because nobody gets into this job to mimic a voice. Everybody gets into this job because I'm, you know, I want to do stuff that I like. So it's like, just remember when you get into that world, it's like, the good news is half of the job, 60% of the job, you get to sit around and do everything exactly like you want to do it. But for that back 40 of writing that script, if you don't write it in their voice, they're going to rewrite it, you know? Um, and that, that's what you're really trying to avoid. Like, how, how are you valuable in a writer's room? You write scripts that don't need to be rewritten, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You, um, yeah. So anyway. I think that's super good advice because definitely when I first staffed, um, I was so grateful to finally be in a room. It had been so much hard work to get there. And in my head, when I get an episode, that's my episode. My name's gonna be on it. I'm gonna take that picture of the TV like everyone does and it's Tasha's episode. And then I actually got there and I was like, oh, it's not my episode at all. It's the showrunner's <laughs> episode and I need to serve them and whatever they need. And that was a huge shift I needed to make. And then as soon as I made that, like, as a showrunner now as well, that's definitely writers who understand that make my job so much easier, <laughs> like in a stress, already a stressful job. Um, and so, and I, but I know that there are a lot of writers who resent that aspect of it and it's like a huge growing process for them. But again, like, as you know, like the, the, the writers you're sort of drawn to are the writers who are able to sort of check their ego at the door and they're, they understand their job is to serve the show. A hundred percent. It is definitely not serving the showrunner. It's serving the show. And the pilot lays out a tone and a feel that you emulate. And if you, you know, yeah, you can't just, you just can't walk away and freelance too much. You can do some stuff, but uh, you just can't walk away and just completely freelance. Have you been ever been in a nightmare room? One of those rooms people have rumors about? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> how did you survive? If you are a writer in that room, how do you handle yourself? I go into most rooms telling myself, this is 20 weeks, it's forever, you're going to have a great time, this is so fun. Uh, went into this one, like, this is exactly the same feeling. By week three, it was like, well, it's only 17 more weeks. You know, you'll get through <laughs> it. It's just, a, it's just a blip on the radar, you know. Nobody's personality walked in there to make a messy room. There were just a lot of circumstances 
uh, swirling around like that project and a million other projects at the same time that made it so messy. Yeah. That's all. The good news is you probably think it's the best show. <laughs> you know what I mean? They can be too clean. Everybody had too much fun. People went home too early. Nobody wanted to dig back in. Uh, there wasn't an appetite to like really attack it. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And uh, try, try as you might. You couldn't, there wasn't like that appetite. Like, hey, let's all, like you said, all, hey, all of our names are on this. Let's go crush it until it's the best thing that anybody saw. It was more like, let's beat traffic. It's 2.30. So. What? That's so interesting. <laughs> Why do you think that was? So I so just interesting. I, Different rooms have different cultures. You know yeah, what I mean? It's absolutely. like, I just come from a place always where it's like, Hey, your name's going to be on it <laughs> and uh, people are going to watch it. And, you know, eventually your mom's going to have something to say. It's like, you know, and like, you know, all your friends. It's like, I just don't want to just don't want to I, I really have tried. And in, in the stuff with Flanagan, I was just so used to a world where we would just do it until it was right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it wasn't like, oh, I got to get back to this or I'm going to go have this life or I got other things. It was just like, no, this is the only thing that matters in the whole world. And they're just going to do it until it's like as good as you can get it. And uh in, 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 in sort of a, a post-Flanagan era of going out and working with other people, the only thing that's been a bummer is that not everybody in the world feels that way. But the good news is there's a bunch of people who do. You know what I mean? It's like I've written two movies now with Alex Aja, that, uh, stuff that's just working through the pipeline. And um, it was just, it's just like the best time I've ever had. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Just like two, two people on a Zoom just going back and forth uh, endlessly about stuff. Or sometimes it was three um, for the one. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was so much fun to be with somebody else where it was like, you know how it's like the, the matchbook, you know, you, you can only strike so many matches on the matchbook before it doesn't go again. It was like, it was like nice to pull out a fresh matchbook and go, Hey, Alex and I are going to play. Are, are you in a post Flanagan era? Are you guys not working together on? Uh, we haven't been a movie together in five years and we haven't worked on a show together in three. No, I mean, it's nothing. I don't think there's anything wrong. I just think it's like, it's the world's best thing to be the writing partner of a very successful director. It's awesome. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, yeah, you, yeah, what, yeah. You're, what you work on is going to get made. But there's also then a level of it where it's like, these are the only times you're going to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, I, you know, at, like after working so hard on it and really liking to do so many different kinds of things and enter so many different worlds, it was like, it was just a nice time after Midnight Mass to like branch out and do a bunch of different things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it was really, it was that call from Resident Evil that made me feel that way. Uh, got you know got that call and they were like would you like to come to work on the show and it was like that had never happened before so I was like sure um, and it was like you know what like this is fun it's not it's it's a different you know setup and it's a different uh, kind of mentality to go into work every day and you sort of you sort of show up in a happy go lucky let's have some fun way and then uh, other stuff started coming in and I, I hooked up with with John Carpenter and his amazing wife Sandy. And uh, we started talking ideas and then one of those worked out and we did a pilot together uh, that's still doing its thing and, um, and another one on the way and uh, the stuff with Alex. And it was just like, wow, like this is uh, after like almost 20 years. I think Flanagan said one time it was like 20 years and something like 28 wow. or something scripts. It was like it was I don't know. It was just nice. Um, I don't think there's anything. I mean, I think if we wandered past each other, it'd be like, hey, how's it going? You know what I mean? It's not like that. It's just like, all right, it's time for a new phase. Yeah. So the whole new world you, song started playing in my head as you were talking. <laughs> I, I used to be one of those people. I'd read those biographies when I grew up and I was like, why would these idiots rock a good situation? Why would you yeah. ever go do something? You know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't you just ride it out and then get into the situation and you're like, oh, I get it. It's like, I don't know. You're always... There's a part of you that's always looking for new challenges and fresh ways to do things. 
Um, yeah. One of my most fun things now is to hook up with uh, with newer writers and and uh, get in a room and throw stuff around like like two people with guitars or something and just see what comes of it. And uh, oh, that sounds fun. It's great. Uh, it's one of the most fun times you could ever have. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, yeah. On your personal journey, have you been selective where you're like, I just want to work on features. I just I'm going to work in television. Have you ever been concerned that you were going to be pigeonholed in one or the other because you seem to flow between every medium pretty seamlessly so got totally lucky you know what i mean was working yeah. in features like i always wanted to do but i love tv and i used to beg my agents back in the day when i was selling those features in the pre-flanagan days like what do i have to do to get into tv and they're like well you can't you know what i mean it's like well, you, you know you got to do the, you know it's a whole different thing got to do this got to do that and then like every you know like a lot of people the streaming thing came along and then i got invited because of hill house into the world mm -hmm. and then once you were there they sort of accepted it. And it was lucky for me because I know there's a real divisive thoughts now about so-called auteur TV versus traditional writer's room TV. And I just like both, you know what I mean? And I just can't help yeah. it. Like I I really like both. Um, and, and, and I think everybody has seen shows from each side that they like. Professionally, I do like a good room. You know what I mean? I like that classic, go in, have a room, write a bunch of episodes, writers get to go to sets and be a part of producing them you know, kind of thing. Um, creatively, single director TV, though, it's really satisfying in terms of like what, you know, you can hold a tone and hold a visuals and like captivate an audience through a whole thing. So it's like, I'm torn, but I think my, in my future, I want to point myself as clearly toward 22 episode uh, network television as humanly possible in the post-strike days. Um, that's, that's my, my fantasy is just, I want the, Friday night, Saturday night, NBC, Saturday, you know, NBC, CBS, 10 o'clock horror slot for six years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, right. Like law and order meets like haunting of Hill House or something. I or something. don't don't think I haven't mixed ad libbed every <laughs> possible take. Um, you know, it's like that. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I've been going through is like what what's something that is it is technically manufactured to satisfy this audience. Like, you know what I mean? What's like technically manufactured to, to do it but also doesn't suck and is really good. Yeah. I mean, speaking to all the many things that you do, what then is your writing schedule like given all of that? You know, strike notwithstanding, let's yeah. say on a normal day. When you're in a room, it's pretty set for you. You know what I mean? Like uh, this witch's room that um, we were in, it was like nine to two uh, over Zoom, which is perfect. Um, we had people from like India and Minnesota, exotic locations like New York City. Um, you know what I mean? And, uh, so, uh, it was pretty set like in a nine to two kind of a stage, uh, alone. I like to wake up in the morning and just crawl outside and do it before you're out of your dream state fully. You know what I mean? Before the world wakes up, um, and, and, and starts bothering you. Uh, I think you can do your best stuff before the phone possibly starts ringing or before anything interesting happens on social media, you know? So in a nine to two room, would you leave room, especially if you're already at home and then start working on your own stuff yeah. in the second half of the day? 100%. Um, yeah. I, I like to have a movie going while you're in a room. Um, I think it's like, it makes you less precious on both things. And I think the more precious you are about stuff sometimes, the more it can slip away from you, you know? Yeah. Whereas if you're, I, like, I would never want to be blasé, but I definitely don't want to be like, oh my God, everything in my universe rides on getting this exactly 100% correct right now. Because I feel like that puts pressure on stuff that like relaxing and sitting back on it lets it just breathe. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote a movie I was really happy with, like right before the strike and really enjoying the people to work with and stuff. And it's like, 
like it's a whole new setup of all new people that I didn't know ahead of time. And it's like, wow, this is a, this is exactly the kind of scenario looking for now. So. As we're kind of wrapping up here, um, we were talking about this and you have a YouTube channel where you, it's called uh, Jeff Howard Sessions, correct? Or yes. Sessions with Jeff Howard. I'm sorry. Yes. Is that Sessions? Yes. Well, it's called it started something. originally as a Jeff Sessions for, for Senator campaign channel that I bought for 30 bucks. And I was like, well, I'm not going to, I won't change any of the branding, you know? So that's hilarious. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, you post videos and information that is incredibly helpful for not just like, new screenwriters, up and coming screenwriters. It's just, I feel like it's helpful for anyone. You know, it's it's just good to to hear certain things and to talk about, I mean, we obviously can't talk about it, but could you talk a little bit more about your YouTube channel and kind of what you're doing and um, the information on there? Uh, yeah, I'm really proud of it and happy about it. And it's something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. I really like YouTube and I like, I watch a lot of stuff on there that I just really enjoy and I just, when I was starting out, you know, it was the late 80s, you know what I mean? I was like a teenager and the only resources that existed were like the the Spike Lee books about uh, she's got to have it in school days and do the right thing. Uh, and the Soderbergh did a, a knockoff version of those books with Sex, Lies and Videotape. And the Sidney Lumet book was out and the, the first William Goldman book was out. And it was like, those were really all the resources I could ever find about what this job was like and what it could possibly be. And the Spike ones were the best because he would do it in like diary form and take you from concept through writing the script, through shooting the movie, all the way to like release. And it was like, this is film school. Like this is somebody mm -hmm. who's actually doing it and taking you through all the steps. And I just fantasized at that time about having a uh, like some sort of place that you could go and ask questions or learn straightforward information or save yourself some time. And it took me nine years to break in after college. And it took like another like nine or 10 years for something to get made. And it was like a crazy amount of time to like sit through and work through and like live through. And I just felt like at, at every turn I made the I, I made mistakes creatively and professionally and opportunity wise and all of that stuff. And I thought as I was now getting into like a later stages of screenwriting careerdom that looking back, it was know. like, what if you could save people some time? Like, you know, what, like what if some of the stuff that you sort of did and the mistakes and the, and the roads that you took that didn't have to be, you could sort of explain. And most people aren't going to be able to listen because everybody sort of most people needs to go through it themselves. Just like when I had that mentor, we talked about at the top of the thing. It was like I would hear him and he would tell me things and I'd be like, ah, that, that'll never be. And then 20 years later, I realized it was all true. Well, it was like yeah. many people might not be able to hear it, but I wanted to put out a bunch of straight information as I had seen it and lived it. Uh, just and a bunch of anecdotes too to walk you through it. Uh, just really designed to save people time in the journey. And I, I do these other things, these these little sessions that are over Zoom or whatever. We'll replace Zoom next. And uh, it, it's like th those are really great, and I really enjoy doing them. I wanted to do the YouTube thing, so there's this like free repository of stuff just for people to access. So uh, just gonna keep building it and keep trying to romance the YouTube algorithm as much as humanly possible. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. they, we're, we're, you know, Marsha, who's, who's my partner in it, and uh, Ken, who um, edited that first Ouija movie and a bunch of, and, and a lot of horror movies, you know, is our editor and effects guy. And it's like, we just threw in as a team. And we're like, let's just each own a third of this thing and give it a shot. And if it takes 18 months to get it up and running to be something that's profitable or does its thing, that'll be great. But in the meantime, we'll just build a treasure trove of like, 100 or 150 videos that people will be able to reference and, and see if it works for themselves. Um, 
And just last thing, I'm trying to move into a zone now where it's like I, I've done a lot of like anecdotal kind of things too. Um, trying to move into a zone of more hardcore writing stuff now too, more demonstrative things. Finally figured out a technique to like do. We're gonna do a series where uh, I, I'm gonna write a pilot on a, in like a four section YouTube video, and it's like you just see the screen as it just sort of appears, you know. So wow. But we've done it a few times before uh, on the zooms with people and stuff, and it's always been so fun and like such a weird tightrope. One time I went five, it was meant to be two hours and I went five hours and did 51 pages or something like that. Wow. And it was just like, they were just, you know, so uh, it, it's, I don't know. And and we started with like 50 people oh. and when we ended, there were like 12, like people hanging in there just like <laughs> You're watching this thing. Out. I was like, like, how could you possibly, like, why are you still here? See, that's I don't the know kind I'm of content that I would definitely be just watching. <laughs> that, that's what hours. we're trying to do. You know what I mean? It's just like that stuff where it's just, I, one of the things I love about David Fincher is that he can make you watch people doing a job and it's interesting. And it's like, yeah. I get interested in that stuff too. And to me, that's what YouTube could be. It's like, here's some good live demos. Maybe it will help, you know, or maybe it'll teach you a few things not to do. Like uh, whatever you take away from it is great. But you basically just pitched the Act 2 network and podcast and <laughs> yeah. community. That's exactly why we're here as well. Like I, the, it started because I met with, you know, a friend of mine who's a writer and we were like, we have so many questions and we're afraid to ask them or no one, we don't have anyone to ask. And because the people are so kind of precious with their knowledge or they're scared to seem like they don't know things. And so I was like, well, let's just start a community where we're okay not knowing and asking these big questions. And then it's, and the second piece of it was I would go to these panels at the WGA or wherever just trying to learn how to be a screenwriter and everyone who was up there on stage would be like yeah and then I got an agent and I sold my first movie and then blah 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 I'm like wait but there are a million steps between those things that we need to talk about because I don't know how to even get to an agent right so like that's kind of how this all came together as well that that's awesome because that's what that's the kind of stuff we're trying to talk about and should you go after an agent first or what should you be going after um I just wanted to say about that stuff about being afraid to pass it forward and all that it's like we all got into this because we're fans. Like we love yeah. movies and TV. And it's like, if you're a professional working in this job, anything you do that would prohibit new good stuff from happening just makes you a bad fan, you know? So like, why, 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 are, you know, why are you pooping upon this thing that you've spent your whole life loving? It's like, I, I think you blow it a kiss and, and thank it and help open some doors for people. Uh, I think it's the responsibility of people who are inside to open doors for people. They did it for me. And they didn't have any reason to. The two showrunners of 90210 took me under their wing in the mid-90s and just like taught me a ton of stuff and, and for no other reason. And then gave me what was going to be my first job before uh, one of them tragically died in a boating accident and the whole thing got scrubbed. Oh. But, uh, you know, oh, yeah. like Gosh, people did Jeff. it for me and you got to do that. <laughs> um, you want to hear a crazy thing in two minutes? I can tell you. Yes, uh, please. So please. Butler and I, my first writing partner, we... Um, Literally on AOL in 1996 or something, meet Jessica Klein, who died about a year ago. Wonderful woman. Her her ex-husband, Steve Wasserman, uh, they were writing partners. They ran 90210 for a few years. They were on the show for a long time. Uh, we got to know them. They took us under their wing. They were separated a couple at the time. Just really lovely and interesting, but going their separate ways. And we they hired us for a show. That was going to be MTV, 65 episodes. It was all, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we worked on this Bible with them and did all this stuff. Went back home for the 4th of July. And uh, we'd been with them for months. And the phone rang. It was like, I'll call them Monday. Like, I just can't. You know, too tired. And then found out that Steve, they, they had been together with their daughter on a boat to Catalina. 
Uh, and Steve, they, they were like, what are you going to do? And he was like, well, you know, while we're waiting for the show, Butler and Howard have this script. I'm going to help them fix up. Like, hang on, let me adjust the boom. And then like walked over to adjust the boom, was hit by the boom, knocked into the water and, and, and gone. Uh, and it's just always haunted me. It's like this thing. It's like, you know, you, you got to be good and give back to people. This guy like opened doors and gave me so much confidence. And, you know, he would say things to you like, if you can make it play, you can make it pay and all these things. And then it's like, you know, and then, and then uh, just gone, you know. Um, and it also taught me another quick thing, which was when you're a writing team like that, his wife, Jessica, went through a lot trying to sustain her career once he was gone. And it was just so unfair because anybody who knew them knew exactly who she was and what she did in that thing. And it was just so strange to see her really have to work to like prove herself to get back into an industry where she was a showrunner. Uh, mm. So just, you know, a lot of lessons learned from those people. Mentors are really good. Don't don't close yourself down to mentorship at, at, at any level. Like be there to open doors. It, it, it doesn't take anything away from you, you know? That is quite a story. It makes me feel like I want to have you back on Jeff to just do an, an episode of anecdotes from Je your story. Yeah, anecdotes with Jeff Howard. <laughs> I uh, we can talk about the time Brian Grazer yelled at me for forty five straight minutes. We can talk about uh, Jeff. Why did we start with that? <laughs> we can talk about Stan Lee uh, teaching me about story and telling me how you got up stakes. We get yeah. There's a bunch of oh there's, my there's been a ton of stuff. We can talk about the night I was convinced that uh, that uh, Morgan Fairchild was in love with me on the set of. Civil, the old Civil Shepherd show. Uh, yeah, like all the, all the, all the great moments. So. Anecdotes with Jeff Howard coming, coming soon. Right. <laughs> Sorry, people. Amazing. Um, that's it. Tasha, should we take, that, should we close that's it out? It. Yeah, we've taken up enough of your time, Jeff. Thank you so much. That was, that was fantastic. Yeah. Quote of the day. There's the only day. one plot. Things are not what they seem. Jim Thompson. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram and Threads if anyone's on there anymore. And Tasha 3.0 on Twitter. I'm Joshua Hallman on Twitter. Josh Hallman on Instagram. Jeff. Oh, uh, Jeffrey Howard 33 on Twitter. I think that's about the only one. Sorry. <laughs> and then Sessions. Yes. Oh, yeah. YouTube channel. Uh, Jeff Howard Sessions. Uh, you can find it. If you go to Twitter, you'll see it all the time. Uh, you can search it on YouTube. Yeah, please. We really appreciate the support. It's like a small, dinky little starting out channel that's only existed for two months. Um, and we're really trying to create a long lasting resource. So thank you. Yeah, it, seem, it seems awesome. I've already subscribed. I'm off to record the next one as soon as we're done. It's like uh, it's a Good it's a nice you. snarky one too. You know, it turns out the uh, the snarky headlines are the things that work. So here we go. That's true. As always, the Act Two podcast is a production of Act Two, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist. Mm -hmm.